This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show. The award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. Hi, thanks for joining us. My name is Bruce Norris, and today our special guest is John Burns. He is the CEO and founder of John Burns Consulting. John founded the company to help business executives make informed housing industry decisions. The company research subscribers receive the most accurate analysis possible to inform their macro investment decisions. And the company's consulting clients receive specific property and portfolio investment advice designed to maximize profits. The team takes great pride in enabling the profitable development of the best places to live in the world. John co-authored Big Shifts Ahead, which we will talk about, uh, Demographic Clarity for Business. John's one of the most sought-after expert speakers in the real estate field today and uh, has a BA in economics from Stanford, MBA from UCLA, and he has been uh, on our panel many times over the years that I survived. So, John, thank you for that, and welcome back. And I'm a huge Bruce Norris fan. <laughs> thank you very much. Um What's interesting, you know, I always think about when people start uh, start a business or get into a field. And so you, you started the, the Burns Consulting in 2001 and you had you had been with other consulting companies before that. But for the run that you had, let's say from 2001 to 2007 in your first six years, um, builders just had a pretty good time, didn't they? Um. Yeah, the first few years, actually, the first year was a little rocky. We, there was this thing called a recession and a 9-11 uh, <laughs> hit. Um, but then the 2003 and especially 2004 through 2005 were, were unbelievable. And it's feeling pretty similar right now. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to what you look at to say, we got to be careful here. What was the year, because 2006, you invited me out to speak or, or debate in front of the, your, your group. Um, and so well, what year was it obvious to the builders that the volume that they were expecting would collapse? What year was that? So the, it was 2006. I, wow. I, I remember specifically Centex Homes in Sacramento was offering $100,000 off a $600,000 home the day after the Super Bowl. So it was like February 1st or something like that. Wow. But what I will, will say is that the suppliers and the trades and the other guys that were relying on the you know, information to run their businesses Wait, it was at least a year before they got it. And it was another two years before Wall Street figured it out or really until Lehman Brothers blew up. Right. Well, you know, that was interesting because I didn't feel a very warm audience that night <laughs> talking about the end of a cycle. So that, yeah, that, was, that was interesting. I, I probably misspoke too. I, uh, stock, builder stock prices uh, peaked at the end of 05. So Wall Street, in terms of, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, got yeah. it, got it, the timing right. It okay. was just a lot of the analysts and things to, you know, and, and the investment bankers and others didn't want to hear it. Um, so the bullet, the bullish case persisted until Lehman Brothers blew up. 
So what's interesting about your business model is so in 2006, 2007, 2008, uh, even 2009, if all you did was stand pat and say, all I do is consult for builders in, in their new projects, there's a good chance you wouldn't have been in business. So how did you switch gears to not only help people that were really hammered by the events of that downturn, also, it seems like you probably got new clientele as well during that cycle. Oh, big time. So I, I actually was more, I felt like I knew what I was doing more in a down cycle than an up cycle because I, I started uh, in real estate in 1989 in Los oh, Angeles. Perfect. <laughs> and, and I worked for KPMG, which had a huge Japanese real estate practice, you know, buying golf courses and doing all sorts of stuff. Wow. And, um, you know, I was in my mid 20s and got to see the housing market fall apart in LA. And, and plug for you, you were the first, I think, who called it. Um, and KPMG, fortunately for me, had a, has a big financial services practice. So the banks and the distressed investors that came in and made a lot of fortune were, were KPMG clients. So I got to work for them during a downturn. And I really saw how much money uh, was made. But then also related to starting my business, I, when I was at KPMG, we were working for commercial real estate and residential real estate. And the commercial real estate guys were just so sophisticated and, and knew when to step on the gas or take the brakes off. And we're doing a, a lot of analysis and the residential market really was not so that was really the crux of my business. I thought, well, gee, I can go do that for the residential guys and they amortize the cost of it across a lot of companies. And that's what we've been doing. Okay. Did you start to negotiate the debt that they had with the lenders during that cycle? Oh yeah, big time. Okay, okay. In fact, to, to that, until recently, 2008 was our best year ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means you put on the right hats. That's all I can say. Uh, we we that, put on the, we put on the right hats, but you know what what happens for for consultants is that um, when people who don't know the industry get involved in the industry, they need some help, and so that's you know banks who never thought they'd be taking back three hundred million dollar unsecured loans all of a sudden were um, distressed guys are coming in and uh, from other industries and saying I can see this industry is in a, in distress. In fact, I won't, I won't mention names, but I'll give you one example is a very, very large, pretty famous debt fund made a huge investment in one of the public home builders who's no longer with us. Oh, wow. and, then, and then called me that evening after they made the investment and said, um, what are you doing for dinner? I said, I have dinner plans. I was in New York and they said, okay, you're having dinner twice because you need to tell me what we just bought. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's a little late, but <laughs> my gosh. Um, when did you first deal with Wall Street when they decided to get into the, the real estate buying business? And were they, were they intentional, intentionally buying rentals at that point or did they think they were buying flips? You're talking about this cycle or last? Yeah, cycle? yeah. No, well, the cycle where I would say 2008 and nine, whenever they joined the party of buying properties at trustee sales, let's say, or lender-owned properties. You know, I don't remember the exact year, but I, I remember when it started. 
So it, it was actually February 09. Okay. Um, where if, if you remember at the time, Congress was passing laws with $10,000 tax credits and all sorts of stuff to try to rescue housing. Right. And it didn't really seem to me like they were doing any sort of analysis. It was just kind of policy <laughs> in, in, a, in a reaction. So I had met this guy who was formerly a treasurer who was very well connected. And I said, well, why don't I just put together a deck of, of what's really going on in the housing market? Because that's what we do. And then you just set up meetings. and I'll just share with all these policymakers what I see going on in the market. You know, I'll get some insight into what's going on with policy. It would be, it'll be great. And um, when I met with FHA HUD at the time, I think it's okay if I mention his name, Raphael. Raphael Bosnick. Yeah, yeah, I know who he is. Yep. Was one of the top people there. Yeah. And Raphael and I were were talking this through, and um, it came to the we came to the realization that what is what is HUD and FHA doing here? We're going to allow, you know, all these foreclosures. We're going to drive people out of their homes. We're going to be driving down prices on FHA by doing that as we sell these things. And then FHA is going to come in and provide rental assistance to these people. <laughs> so we're like, why, why, you know, wouldn't it be better for everybody if you just kept them in the house? Uh, you know, if you have to turn them into a renter, that's fine. But everybody be better off if you, if you didn't do this. And so um, Raphael said, that makes a lot of sense. I don't think the government's a good landlord. Can you go find somebody who's a property manager? And um, we're going to need some capital to pull this off too. And so I, I went around Wall Street um, in 2009 pitching that. A couple, wow. of my, a couple of my clients had, I mean, just pitching it to a couple of my clients is a, is a favor to them. To, two of my clients are, are three of the most famous people that made a fortune during the downturn shorting mortgages. Okay. One of them was very interested in taking his fortune and turning around and getting on the other side of this. Um, but FHA, it just never, you know, the, the government wasn't able to do it. So the story got written there, but I think when Blackstone and others decided to come in big a few years later, they had heard the story from 2009 and that's what kind of got us going. Okay. So now that you can't buy houses below replacement costs, um, the build to, uh, the build to, ah, there you are. Let's see if I can start a video here. Can you see me? Yes. There we go. Yay. <laughs> all right. Well, after all this below replacement cost houses left the building and now you're involved in clients that are starting to look at rent to own yeah. Not only rent owned scattered homes, but rent owned start from scratch build track homes. So, do you see that as a as a big player going forward? That is a massive play going on right now. I think I, the capital seeking that is almost unlimited. So you're, and I won't mention which client this time, but we used to have this argument about what is replacement cost anyway, and that's your whole thesis and buying below replacement cost. And it was, you know, it, it didn't take long before they were buying at replacement cost. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We were competing against them. We know that. <laughs> right. But then, you know, the, the big question is, what is the land value in that? And that, that usually fluctuates through the cycle. 
but I, but anyway, I, I, um, there were a lot of skeptics, as you know, and I was skeptical too, because I'd never seen this before, that somebody could buy thousands and thousands and thousands of homes and manage them effectively like the apartment guys do where they're all right next to each other. And I learned along the way that thanks to some new technology that basically was being developed at that time, um, you can make it work. So the model wasn't proven until really Invitation Homes uh, did their first securitization. And then, then they went public and American Homes went public and everybody could see their financial statements. And they're saying, these guys are making money with homes scattered all over the Metroplex. Can you imagine what they would do if they were all the exact same house with the exact same refrigerator right next to each other? And new. And new. So there's going to be, you know, the CapEx risk is gone. Um, and uh, a third of the people, a third of the world, a third of renters rent apartment complexes and we build brand new complexes for those willing to pay a premium for something new all the time. Why don't we build something for the two thirds of renters <laughs> that are in a single family rental home that have never had the opportunity to rent a new house or, or it's very difficult. Um, and even going a little further into that, as we did a lot of consumer research on this, if you're the renter in a neighborhood, the homeowner kind of snubs their nose at you a lot of times when you pull into the driveway. Right. And yet now you're in with like-minded people and nobody, you know, you're all in the same boat. So I, I actually think it's a better experience in many, many respects uh, than just renting a single family home in an own neighborhood. Um, let's talk a little bit about Big Shifts Ahead. You wrote that in what year? 2016. 16. And I read it in a day, and I have a feeling it took a long time to write. 9,000 painful hours of reading. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it must have been painful since you've carded the ball. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 I know do, you're passionate about it, though, too. Yeah, I didn't do all 9,000 hours, uh, but uh, my wife will attest it was many nights and weekends. It was, my, it was a side job for at least a year. Yeah. Um, one of the keys in the books was renaming the generations and reducing the years that those groups represented. So why did you make that decision to do that? Uh, well, what, what I think we're pretty good at is taking complex stuff and making it simpler. And it just dawned on me that, you know, we're comparing boomers to Gen X, one's 19 years, one's 17 years. Uh, millennials, people can't even agree on the start and end date. Uh, and we're doing all these apples and oranges comparisons. And the analogy I used was uh, Mark Zuckerberg, born in 84, and my daughter, born in 2000, were both millennials. Right. Kind of in different stages of their lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we just went to, if you went to decade born, nobody's going to argue what year you're born. You're going to be comparing 10-year periods to 10-year periods. The time frame is going to get a little tighter, so you can really talk about this is the period of time where they're doing household formations or buying homes. Uh, we actually broke it down by year and then five-year, and that was just too many breakouts, so we went with, with decade born. Okay. How, how, how many, uh, so how soon do you start naming the new one? Because we're in the new decade now. So what is... Yeah, so in 2016, we called those born in the 2000s the globals, so the, the youngest of which was six. And I was sticking my neck out a little bit at the time, but every generation we gave a name for how they were, we thought they were changing the world or changing how we live. And 
we just thought that group was going to be more sensitive to what was going on globally, not knowing they'd end up in a global pandemic probably during their 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 the most important formation year. So I think we got lucky on that one. The Quarantinos, is that what you're gonna call them? Well, I think that they're they're globals, but you know, but those born in the 90s were the connectors because that's when we shifted to being connected 24-7 on cell phones and they were also being helicopter parented. So there was a connection there. The group born in the 80s were called the sharers. They really developed the sharing economy and they were doing Airbnb and Uber and all those really cool companies were started by those guys to uh, just share things so everybody could have nice stuff at less of a cost. And then we can go all the way back if you want, but. Well, the, the generation that I'm part of, let's, let's talk about, there's people born in the 50s. Yeah. So I, I'd, I'd like to just ask a few questions just as comparison. So percentage of ownership of a home for the innovators that were uh, born in the 50s compared to the shares of the uh, born in the 80s. What, what percentage? And I know that we're older, so we own more. But do you have an idea of the same time frame, the percentage of owners? I I do. I don't have it up to date. Oh, that's okay. Well, obviously, it was a lot a lot more of us owned homes. So how how does uh, how does shares view home ownership in general? So so the the way we did that is we looked at. Um, the ages of uh, kind of 28, 38, and 48 as kind of your 10-year, 20-year, and 30-year high school reunion as a way to, to do the math on that, Bruce. Okay. And um, if I remember correctly, uh, the 80s group was about 5 or 6% behind your generation at the same age, at the age of 28. Okay. However, they were also having kids four years later and, and getting married, I believe it was five years later. Um, in fact, a lot of them having the kids first and then getting married. Mm -hmm. So um, I think some of that is a little bit misleading because it's not just the age that's the impetus to become a homeowner, it's the change in life stage. Okay. So um, I, I actually was optimistic that not that they would completely catch up, but that that some of that gap would be closed just as they as they moved into later life stage. And then actually, you know, when you buy a home at 32 instead of 26, you're making more money. It's it, you're actually a little more able to, to buy a home. So okay. I, I I didn't think they were ever going to completely catch up because I made a bad assumption that mortgage rates, that mortgage financing would not get looser or easier. <laughs> after Dodd-Frank. Uh, and I don't think the documentation's gotten easier, but clearly rates have gone down and FHA has taken a lot of market share. So some things have been much more favorable for home ownership than I envisioned. What were some of the ideas in the big shift where, that you expected to see, some of the big shifts rather, that you expected to see after you wrote the book in 2016? So big shifts ahead, what shifts were you thinking? Um, well, we came up with this rule called the four, five, six rule, which is how I help remember these things. I need acronyms. <laughs> um, th there were, as we studied all the generations and what caused them to form households and, and be homeowners. And, uh, there was a government policy that drove it. I mean, your generation was not that far after the GI bill, right. uh, and the group before you were all vets because they were drafted. So everybody was a GI, you know, that, that, that helps. <laughs> sure. Um, 
so government policy, we, we thought Dodd-Frank was going to be uh, much more stringent and much tougher to get a mortgage. So we were wrong on that. Um, you know, I never envisioned that the government would be printing money like it's printing now either. So we were wrong on that. But the, the, um, anyway, the, the reason I, I, I say this is if you look at the four policies, government policy, what the economy is, what new technologies are, which I already told you how that impacted the single family rental business and societal shifts um, like getting married later, going to college, having student debt. If you look at that across the five life stages, you come up with different conclusions and, and people were generalizing, well, you know, the economy is going to cause this to homeownership. Well, falling interest rates are going to cause this. Well, it's going to do something different to a young person who's buying their first home than somebody who already owns a home, than somebody's in retirement who thought they were going to live on interest income and no longer can. Right. So I, I think taking those those four disruptors and looking at them by life stage allows people to answer the six questions, which is what, why, when, where, and how um, are people going to buy my products or rent, rent my house? And by the way, it's one of those books you have to have on your shelf. You don't just read it. You look at it whenever you want to uh, answer a question about demographics. It's just really an important, it's like a encyclopedia. It was it was fun to read. I, not very many people read that in a day. And I had a yellow marker, so it was pretty fun. <laughs> it's got a hundred color charts in it so that we, we decided to make it easy to read. Yeah, that was good. One of the things that I recall was that you thought there were going to be some demographic changes or um, migration changes. There were going to be states that grew more than they yeah. used to compared to states that were going to grow less than they are used to. So has that occurred and what states were were they? Yeah, so at the, at the time, I remember uh, if, you, if you define the South as Nevada through Texas, through Florida, all the way up into the Carolinas. Okay. 42% of America lived in, in that swath of the country, but 62% of the growth was going there. We, we believe that that was going to accelerate um, primarily because of those pro-growth policies uh, in the South that were attracting jobs and home being more, homes being more affordable. And, um, and that has played out in, in spades, frankly. Right. But uh, th that wasn't earth shattering. I think most people knew that was going to happen. Why did, I, you know, you know, I've talked a little bit about this, but looking at, you know, looking at prices, we both have a kind of a historical perspective and no charts. California was almost on par with the U.S. median price in 74, 34 grand to 31 grand. And then in a very short period of time, it doubled the national price. And basically it's been parked there, thereabouts, you know, 170 to 210. Was that, what, what drove that? And is that, is that being unwound by losing migration constantly now? I'm just curious what your take is on that. I think the main thing that drove that was uh, supply constraints. I mean, there's a notion on the West, so you couldn't expand West. On long coastal California, there's, there's some mountains along the East. They just weren't making more land in LA and Orange County. And um, people didn't view Fresno and Bakersfield as, uh, as acceptable places to relocate. Instead, they started relocating. Okay. And uh, it, it was mostly, I think it was mostly supply. I called it the Manhattanization of California. I mean, Manhattan okay. was very expensive in the 70s, 
because of supply constraints. Same with California. Do you think that's that's kind of still intact, right? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Interesting. So California losing people on an annual basis now, which is basically even the migration that comes in is less than the migration that coming out. California gains population only by birth over death right now. But because of the constrained supply, you're not thinking they'll have a negative price event going forward because of the supply constraint. Well, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. With supply constraint during the last two downturns, and we had negative price events. So, okay. so what I was answering is why it's essentially a permanently more expensive place to live. So, okay. And it, and it's always been at least since '74 permanently more expensive than the rest of the country. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, but it can, because of that, I do think it can cycle harder because prices, when demand exceeds supply, prices can run up more quickly when you really can't provide supply. And, and that's the other difference in California. It's not just the lack of land to build on, but the, the extent there is land, the jurisdictions here make it very, very difficult and very, very expensive for the home builders to provide anything affordable. Um, let's switch gears and I, I wanna talk about what you saw in coming for 2019. So let's say we were in Janu January, 2019 and I'll kind of give you my take looking at the charts and again, being pretty familiar with it. We had record low unemployment, no foreclosures to compete with. Inventory levels were pretty normal, uh, reasonable construction levels. Uh, economy was growing and it felt certain, kind of like you enter 2019 thinking everything's pretty good. And then at the end of the year, prices grew by a very meager percentage. And that, that surprised me because it was the same set of charts that we had in 87 and 04, which we did double digits. So what did, what did, what did you see at the beginning of 2019 and it play out the same or differently than what you thought? So, you know, and I, I'm a real contrarian on this. So I, I think in the middle of 29, and I've explained this many times and nobody agrees with me, so that's what a contrarian is. <laughs> but if you look at the middle of 2019, um, and until the very end, we had 2.08 adults per household, which was the long-term norm. So you can't really say in terms of shelter, we were undersupplied. Okay. Right? Um, and home prices and rents were both growing at three to 4% per year and incomes were maybe growing at two to three. So I thought 2019 was a stable housing market, just boring, stable. We had a forecast for some similar numbers to what were going on. Um, but the other piece of this that uh, we calculated in 2012, I think it was, that we had overbuilt the country by three and a half million units. Okay. Uh, and we kept building from 2012 to 2019 um, until eventually, we, it took us a long time, but we got back to equilibrium vacancy, if you will. We, we okay. had the right number. And I, I think it was in the middle of 2019 where all of a sudden I finally was the last person on board and said, you know, nationally, we do have a supply shortage. Everybody's been saying that forever. That's right. Uh, and they're still saying it now. Um, 
And so you had you had a supply shortage that was starting to play out. The multifamily guys were building for it. We had a 30-year high in construction, so they could see it. And um, then rates fell. And uh, you know that, that combination caused a pretty strong fourth quarter of 2019, but a really robust first quarter of 2020 until the pandemic hit. I mean, the housing market was much stronger than I had forecast. I mean, it was off to the races. That's going to do it for part one of our interview with John Burns of John Burns Real Estate Consulting. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. Thanks. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01219911, Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS License 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab.